0: Hey there, Knicks fans. How are you? It's your boy, Jonathan Macri, with you for another episode of the Knicks Film School Podcast. Uh, It is a pleasure to... Be with you, um, even though it 's been a little bit more infrequently of late, we are trying to you know recharge the old batteries here in the off season before things get crazy. But uh, when we do a podcast uh, until things get nuts, I guess in about two weeks from now um, we 're going to make it worth it. so I have two very special people on line with me. one is um, uh, a man who needs no introduction—is that a good way to introduce? Is that a good way to introduce JB? Yeah,
1: sure. Why not? Uh, yeah, JB, that, that
0: you're, the, you're the man who <laughs> needs no introduction. Um, how
1: are you, man? I'm doing good. Excited to uh, to be on today.
0: Yes, and part of the reason that I know you are excited is the same reason I am. Um, we have as a returning guest. I'm so happy to be able to say that he's a returning guest um we loved having him on the first time he still has the record for longest podcast and that doesn't even include the 20 minutes or so we kept talking after we stopped uh after i hit you know stop recording uh, and that is the athletics own mike vorkanoff mike how you doing man
2: what's up guys
0: also it's jb isn't it like your
2: podcast like, why are you sounding like you're a guest? To a no, romantic? that I'm a guest,
1: because I, I basically handed it to Macri, and now it, it's really Macri's podcast, just with the Knicks oh. Film School name. But, yes, okay. it is like so I'm you, a guest, because I don't come on often you, enough.
2: Okay, so you have custody. You guys have figured that out.
1: <laughs> yeah. Actually,
0: actually, the, um, the shareholders of the podcast are suing JB, because he is um, uh, too much of an absentee. Uh, owner of the podcast. They want yes. him to to get back and be a little bit more involved. Um, although there are some rumors circulating that the wheels may fall off the podcast if JB um comes and meddles with it. Um I, I don't know if I if I can um you know if I could back up those rumors or not. Um anyway, on that note. Um Mike, uh how are you enjoying a little bit of time off. You did some work with the Nets uh after the Knicks season ended. You're they've been out of it for now I guess a week and change. Uh, how's your summer been so far?
2: I'm not really sure what time off comes into play. <laughs> there's still a lot of work to be done, especially with this Knicks offseason. It was nice to cover playoff games, though. That was fun. That was the first time I got to do that. Uh, so that was like a, it was nice to just focus on basketball for a little bit. Um, yeah, did, yes.
1: you, did you cover, because I know you were covering the, the Mets for a while, but I don't remember which years. Like in terms of playoff games in general for any sport, have you been unfortunate with the New York teams you've had to cover?
2: Well I I covered the Mets in twenty fifteen, so I got to cover them during that World Series run. Okay, um, you did get them, okay. And I covered Rutgers at the beginning of my career and Rutgers is just, you know, kind of or has been since actually kind of a black hole for postseason appearances. Uh but so I have the twenty fifteen Mets World Series run. That that's on my resume and I get to I get to say I covered that and that was a
0: lot of fun. Well um I know most people listening to this podcast are going to hope that this is the last time uh, that you're covering the Knicks where, you know, your season covering them ends in April. Um, And I want to start things off, I guess, by um, referring back to something that you wrote. um, I want to say it was probably a couple couple days before the Knicks season ended. Um, And one of the reasons I've loved your stuff all year is because you kind of, you don't beat around the bush, you kind of get right to the point. And you basically, you asked in an article, um, very, very plainly, very openly, um, what the hell was the point of this? Um, we just been through 82 games of a season in which the people in charge of the Knicks this year said from day one, and they kept repeating it, and they've, you know, since repeated it since the season ended, that this year was about getting their house in order, Um, so to speak, and I actually want to read something to you that you wrote because I think this nailed it. Um, You wrote, The Knicks had hoped to use the season to rebrand themselves, forward-thinking, fun, and attraction to free agency. Uh, To say that their perception has changed wholesale as head coach and execs have continuously tried to launder through the media is not yet clear. That will be determined in a few months. James Dolan remains the owner. The Knicks, by reputation, remain a tautology, I love this line, forever doomed until they aren't. Um, I love that paragraph because I think you encapsulated their season incredibly well. And my question to you, I guess, to kick things off is, like, do you think, just in your opinion, I know we don't have any proof of it yet. Do you think they've turned a corner here and whatever that means?
2: Yeah, look, I think it was definitely a progressive year for them. Um, Maybe not for all the reasons they said but it was it was a point of progress for them for a few reasons. One, they they have a coach that they like. And they're moving ahead with him. Uh in David Fisdale. You know, they really did strip down the team to like the barest parts possible. Uh and they have kind of a nucleus that they can be comfortable going forward with with Kevin Knox and Mitchell Robinson. Um you know, whoever the first round pick is possibly this year. And that I think for them is good because the 2017-18 season, you know, that was like year zero for the Pills uh, Mills-Perry regime, right? Like, Jeff Hornacek seemed like he was a dead man walking for most of the year, unless they pulled the miraculous uh, playoff appearance. And they needed to kind of, for the most part, like, move away from the Phil Jackson regime, and that was the year that they used to do it. So they have a plan in place. Uh, they don't have the wins to show for it. This summer is going to be big for them because, you know, I, I, I struggle to say that it's proof of concept because I think free agency nowadays is not, um, it, it's not overall like a reflection of what players think of an organization. It's a reflection of what the players want to do with their lives at that point in time, which can be independent of the organization that they choose. That's a great um, point. But, but I think the fact that the Knicks are not getting ignored anymore is very good. I think Scott Perry has brought a lot of calm to the organization you know steve mills deserves credit for that as well but he's a holdover so he's kind of been uh the through line for the knicks in a lot of ways over the last uh decade or so right mm-hmm. um, before he left the msg and then after he returned uh so i think in a lot of ways that's how they made progress this year. they got their stuff in order i, I think it came at a very large cost at, with the christoph's porzingis trade and you know i can't say that i'm a proponent of that trade even still and and, you know, I, I know people feel a lot of ways about that deal, and I think like right after Porzingis got traded, I saw the Knicks fan base at large just kind of turn on him very quickly. Um, but I, I look, you, there was a lot. There was a large cost to it. They've got their house in order. They have some foundational pieces. They have a lot of cap space, which if used wisely, can really put them in a good place either immediately or over the long term. And if you look at the places they had been, which is kind of stumbling and bumbling around for the last 20 years, this represents at least a vision that is now incumbent on them to carry out. And I don't think that they've had that very often in the last 20 years. So I think that's how it was progress for them.
0: Yeah, I I know. I I think you you phrase it very well. It's like step one as as an NBA organization is just to get to the starting line, like forget about the finish line. Just get to the starting line without like your legs tied together or, you know, like a blindfold on or something. And the Knicks often have not been able to do that and now they're they're there, they're in running position. So yes, that's progress. I I guess the interesting part for me, you said just now like, okay, they have their house in order. Fizdale went on the jump, I think it was a week or two ago, and he's like, "We got our culture set." Those are like, those are words, right? Those are just, those are just words. Like, and, and I think there are, there are actions that they took to make those words true. And I think there are pieces of evidence that we could point to to say, yeah, that stuff happened this year. But at the same time, what you wrote is just as true. This is the Knicks. They are doomed until they are not doomed anymore. So it's like how do we – and I don't know that there is an answer to this. How do we reconcile that, those two things? Is it is it something that can't be reconciled until, you know, a Kevin Durant or a Kawhi Leonard or whoever signs on the dotted line? Or is there something else to it? Is it just kind of like we kind of have to just track it incrementally as it goes along? Like, do you have an answer to this or do you, do you kind of even get what I'm, I'm getting at? No, I, I get
2: it. And I think the reason why they're the Knicks until they're not is because so many – I mean – so many significant parts of the franchise are there from their like most nixiest days, right? Uh, the most obvious one being the owner. And that that is something that they cannot get around. But I saw this with the Mets too. You know, the Mets under Sandy Alderson had some questionable moves, but for the most part, they had a process. Uh, they had like a process in place, they had a plan. And they kept acting on it and eventually they put enough good moves together where it paid off and they got to the playoffs. So I think the Knicks can do the same thing, right? Like that's kind of the best case scenario. You know, maybe it all just works out in one summer and they sign Durant and they sign Kyrie and like, boom, you know, they're a 55 win team overnight, which would certainly be great for them. and a to credit like I'm not going to diminish that one bit. But they can also do that by taking a slow and steady approach and building through the draft and through youth and through development and all the other ways that they have said continuously that they would. You know, it's longer. It's more risk because you don't have the immediate rewards because you're banking on young players rather than proven players. But that's how they that's how they prove what they are saying about themselves right right now it's just rhetoric and you know people like mills people like perry people like fizzdale around the league i can't you know pretend to speak for the like the league at large but at least some of the people that i've talked to and i think that's a positive for them you know it's just at some point all those things all you make enough good decisions and they add up into positive results into wins and then playoff appearances and depending on how you pick maybe playoff wins and playoff series wins right that's how um, rhetoric becomes results, and that's how you see the actual proof of concept. Uh, I, or maybe they just signed Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving because <laughs> those two guys decide, <laughs> hey, we want to come to the Knicks. But yeah, I, I do I mean, think it's, it's important amazing. there because – yeah, I mean, but I think there's one critical thing is that you know, the, the Mets, while they made a World Series run and they made uh, the wild card the next year – you know, they have to some degree always been hampered by their ownership, right? Like, that's the one long term thing in the organization yeah. that I, I believe in sports determines how successful and how um, long standing your success can be. And I think that's why there's been uh, this kind of like cynicism towards the Knicks. And that's one of the things that they're going to have to basically, you know, <laughs> disprove. They're, they're going to have to disprove that either uh, it matters or they're going to disprove that it's a hindrance anymore
1: right yeah and i think to me what's most interesting this summer is if they don't land you know durant or Kyrie or or someone of that nature and then what they do next in terms of how the fan base reacts because i think from um you know the the type of fans that me and jonathan usually talk to and like the diehard variety there's a lot of this thought that you hear of people saying Okay, we're not we're not necessarily we'd be disappointed if they don't get Durant, but we're not necessarily upset at the organization. Like that's not an indictment against them because, as you alluded to, that you know it's based on a personal decision. The indictment would be if they followed that up, you know, paying a non max player, you know, doing what the Knicks have done, you know, Jerome James, Antonio McDice, that type of move. But I guess to me the question is if you take from your perspective as as a reporter, not a fan. I mean, how? You know, I guess you alluded to it a little bit already, but you know, do you think that they need to land one of those top free agents to make the Perzingis trade, to make the decisions they made to clear space, um, to justify those decisions, or do you, th- or do you think there's some leeway, you know, that that allows to see what happens if they don't land those guys, what you know, the resulting decisions are there. Um, does it does it really become kind of cut and dry? Because like I said, I think from a fan perspective, the thought is, okay, you know, they can go other routes and and you could still feel okay, but I'm not sure if that's different than, like I said, if you kind of took yourself out of being a fan and maybe looking for an optimistic view.
2: I, I think they can still have a good summer if they don't sign a free agent, um, you know, a star free agent. I, I think there's they would be justified in building slowly you know if they get a top two pick and building around zion williamson or john morant along with kevin knox along with mitchell robinson you know picking up the option on alonzo trier maybe deciding to bring back frank nilakina for another year and building that way and then using the cap space to sign a guy on a you know restricted free agent trying to steal him away or taking on uh, someone else's horrible contract in, in exchange for a future first right like i think that's totally fine would that justify the christophs Porzingis trade? No, because, I, you, you know, they traded away the guy they said for every day until he got traded was their franchise centerpiece. And the large benefit of that was the cap space that they created instead of having a young all-star in hand. But you also can't think that way because now it's a sunk cost. It is what it is, right? You try to make the best of the situation going forward, not you know, trying to make a previous move work and shoehorning results into that. So I, I think they'll be fine. Like, you know, they've said their posture right now has been, oh, listen, if we miss out on the top stars, we won't spend free agency dollars unless it's players who are worth it. Right. Is that really an answer? No, because I don't know who, you know, The <laughs> you only deem players who are worth it when you give them the money. In the past, that's led to bad results. And this time, maybe it won't. Um, I, I think you can have a good summer just by playing the slow game and waiting for next summer free agency or waiting for the next star who wants out of his uh, unhappy situation. And then you have the assets to make the trade. As they said, they have seven picks in the next five years and that can get you something. So I don't think there's any need to rush it unless there's some internal expectations that they need to rush it. Um, they haven't made that clear yet, but that that's the only way uh, that gets bad. I, I think like to me it's fine and i've said this since february it's fine if you just take the slow and steady approach but the expectations have been raised so high by themselves oddly enough right not just by knicks fans not by nba fans not by people reading all the reporting and the rumors it's it's by the owner Uh, you know he's the guy who put it out there really like scott scott barry and steve Mills had just really like they i think they erroneously increased expectations last summer then set about over the next few months trying to tamper it down and then boom that comes out by James Dolan and here we are and so now it's just this weird place where they would be completely fine I think going slow if they don't get Duran or Kyrie but then (laughs) what do you do with what the owner just said and does that reflect what he thinks too and what he expects for the summer
1: yeah no and I think to me the the point of the real test of if the quote because there's culture in terms of you know, how the players feel in the locker room and around the team, et cetera. But then to me, there's another culture that is mostly for fans and media to comment on. And that's just how the perception of the team is. And I think that true test is more, do they follow through on this point? You know, Steve Mills is even saying it, I guess, on the MSG 150 tonight of, you know, we're, we keep saying prudent because we're going to make prudent decisions. They're overemphasizing the point. That, you know, as much as, you know, you had the article out about all the things they've said about how they're optimistic about getting Durant. I mean, you could write the same article about how often they've brought up the point that if they don't get a max player or the right player, they're not going to spend. I think they've said that point as loudly. So to me, it's more if they go against that point, that not the Durant one, but the being prudent point, that's where they would lose, I think, all the cachet they've built over the past year. Um could literally be wiped away with one bad signing, one overreaction. That that to me, and from a perception of the culture, is kind of their true, you know, testing point.
0: And and that's where I want to pick up because Mike, you had, I thought, a really, really good article that dropped today. In which you basically go through, um, you know, I guess picking up on—I forget if it was Perry or um, Mills—quoted as saying, "We have plans A, B, C, D, and E." Right? You basically went through plans A, B, C, D, and E. Um, And I think the really interesting. So you know, you state the obvious that if you could state, if you could sign um, Durant, Leonard, um, Kyrie, or or Clay, and I agree with you, Clay goes in that group. You do it, and you don't think twice. The turning point for me this summer. Comes if those four guys all say no, and you're left staring at potentially, and and there's no guarantee that either of these guys would want to come here, Kemba Walker or Jimmy Butler, and I'll I'll kind of group them separately from the other guys that you mentioned in in that second tier. I uh, think you mentioned Tobias Harris, Middleton, and Horford. Because, yeah, and I think that's fair. Yeah, because I think there's there's uh, not only from a, a a level of of player that they are. But also, and I think this is what makes it so interesting, and I think you actually wrote this about Jimmy Butler. When Jim, when you sign Jimmy Butler, you are, you are changing your culture um, instantly. Now, with Butler, there's some some good, obviously, that comes with him, and then there's some who knows what that comes with him, and we've seen that play out with the Bulls in Minnesota. And also Kemba. I think Kemba you know, has set a certain type of culture down in Charlotte, and I think he would bring a certain amount of that. My question is this. I've gone on record and said, I think it would be a bad move to sign either one of them if you don't get one of the bigger guys. The reason I'm starting to question that is this. You're signing one of them because one of the top guys, all of the top guys, essentially, has said no. So is that a sign to the organization that you need to basically bridge the gap, Like, no one is going to come to you until you show that you are on your way towards becoming um, a better team. And the reason why I think signing Kemba, and and although Jimmy makes me queasy for all the obvious reasons, Jimmy Butler, the reason I I think signing one or the other is interesting is because it wouldn't box them into no-flexibility. Like, if you sign one of them to a max contract, you would still have room to, as you suggest in your article, you know, take on another team's bad contract for a pick, or maybe sign guys to inflated, like, one-year deals or, you know, a a year deal with a team option. Do you think that that's something that they would, that you think would be prudent from their perspective? Like, all right, we have to get someone in here to show the rest of the league that we're, like, on the way or do you think it would be a mistake and i i, I ask you this question because i don't I honestly don't even know the answer at this point uh
2: yeah i and i hope i made this clear like in the article i think that signing like jimmy butler or kemba walker isn't necessarily a bad thing um i think that there's an argument why those guys are i mean look they're both max players in my eyes um you know, when Scott or Steve Mills says, and I forget which one of them said it exactly, or maybe they both said it, you know, that they want to sign the right player, that's an ambiguous term, right? Extreme. You don't know what that means. <laughs> yeah, that, that gives them all the leeway because they I, they get to define it. Um, I think signing, I think there's a value to signing like Kemba Walker or Jimmy Butler. Uh, you're going to have to sign him for the max, probably. So that takes up one max spot. Yep. I think it's valuable because. Um, you know like it makes you better right away i i don't think it's good to pile up a bunch of 17 and 20 win seasons uh and for a lot of reasons um so, so there's there's a value in that like you said and just becoming respectable and showing to players either the ones who are trying to decide when they you know ask out of their contract the next star where they want to go or in free agency that new york is a place that they can win and that they're already on their way uh what what i worry about is what does it get you immediately and that means you're still several steps away from getting to the point you want to be right like if you sign Kemba Walker and you have him on your books and his expensive contract you still need to do a few things to get to the level that you want to be right but you still but now you have a very large contract saddling your cap space so that's the difference between signing him immediately alongside like a Kevin Durant for obvious reasons like that's much better but like you know I think there's like a I think I'm going to like totally mangle this and I'm probably going to screw up uh, what I'm trying to say anyway. But I think there's like this allegory in tech that like if you're like two yeses away from making your product work, then you're too far and it's never going to succeed or like, you know, two things having to go right. You know, (laughs) if the Knicks are too many things from having to go right away from becoming a postseason team, like that's just too high a degree of difficulty to make a signing like that worth it, if that makes sense. and, and I think that's the risk in signing like a Jimmy Butler or a Kemba Walker as the lone max free agent. Like, yeah, it'll probably get you closer to a playoff team next year in the East, with you know, the magic and the Pistons being the playoff teams, like the seven and eight seeds, but that's that's not quite what you're going for. And it might just be better to take the slow, steady growth and and punt another year if you can sell everyone from ownership to the fan base into it.
0: Yeah, and I know. and I'm so happy you said that because it, it I'm always thinking like opportunity cost. And you just phrased it beautifully, which is that the opportunity cost of signing a Kemba or a Jimmy is you win more. And I think there, there are arguments for why that's a good thing. Like, as you said, it's not always great for the development of your culture and your players to have continual, like, you know, 20 and 22 win seasons. Um, but on the other hand, you know, obviously you're, you're not putting yourself in as good a position for a, a good draft pick. I just, that gets back to one of those unanswerable questions. It's like, is there such a thing as too much losing? Um, you know, like Philly, I I guess, is Philly showing us that there isn't too much a thing as show, as too much losing? <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I, I honestly don't know uh, yeah, the answer the, to that.
1: The rare uh, exception, right? Because you can look at Phoenix yeah. or other teams, right, that have gone down that path, maybe not as deliberate, um, but haven't had the results of them. And sometimes I think the success of Philly misleads people into thinking that, you know, just hanging out in a lottery is... Uh, you know, as your path to, to freedom. But, you know, to me, to, you know, when we're thinking about, say, Kemba in particular, it's more the years than the fact that he fills a max slot for me. Cause it's like if he, if you're not gonna get Durant or, you know, Anthony Davis or whatever else it's gonna be, and you look at the age of the rest of your roster, you know, especially if you got someone like Zion or a top, even top two or three pick there. You know you're not ready to compete, right? So the idea that you would have, you know, a veteran come in that would create, you know, a, a better team can um, help these guys develop in the next two to three years isn't a bad thing. It's just you worry the back end of that contract when you know some of these players are are starting to get productive, starting to get more pricey because they're getting to the um, you know to the restricted parts of their of their rookie contracts that you then have to make a decision and you're hampered by that big contract. So, you know, to me, it's always the years as much as it is, you know, are, is this player worth a max contract? Because we know the way the CBA is written, you know, max is kind of a, a term defined by the CBA more than it is defined by the actual market value of these players. If, if you had to pay Durant his true market value, it would be far above what the max is. Versus maybe Kemba is closer to the actual max, so it's like it's kind of strange how it works out that way.
2: Yeah, and I, I mean, so many things go into it, right? It's like it's the years, it's the money, it's you know, it's what he's worth to the organization, right? Like um, maybe there's a scenario where you can still trade him two, three years down the line if you have to, right? Maybe some team will want to take him on, or maybe he's kind of like Mike Conley. Who I thought would be able to get traded, but it seemed like his contract was too big to deal without um, just giving it away. You know, this this past season. So it, all those things have to be taken into consideration when you're trying to decide whether to give away such a deal. Like it's it's complicated. You know, it's it's alchemy, right? Like, and that's that's the struggle, and that's why I think it is more interesting to me what happens if they don't sign Durant or Irving, uh, rather than if they do, because. It, that's going to be a real test of whether the Knicks have truly changed, as they said they have. Yeah, right. And I think it that happens. would go a long way. Yeah, and I, and I think that would go a long way too around the league to changing their reputation, right? Like then they can say, okay, no, look, like we really have changed. We didn't sign Durant, but look, we didn't do anything stupid. <laughs>
1: yeah, no, and, no, that's, no, and that's, that's and, right, but that's
0: right. that's the question. Is it's like you start to get into, you know, the question of like what is stupid and what is like to me actually signing. Unless they get Zion because I think that's its own its own road because he has the potential to be you know for all we know at this point the best player on a on a you know contender um at least that can't be ruled out. I guess maybe would be the better way to put it like other than that than that scenario, I think signing like two guys and using up all your space for the next four years like that would be the sign and and um I should say two guys not from category one um Two guys from category two, whether it's you know Kemba and Tobias Harris, or you know uh, Jimmy Butler and uh, I don't know Chris Middleton or something, like that would be the worst case scenario because then you've taken all leeway out of it. Whereas I guess the the reason that I'm I'm kind of hanging on to that idea of like, well, would it be the worst thing if they signed one of those guys from tier two, is because you have to remember that you know theoretically New York is different as a market. And that whereas other um, organizations, you know, the the draft and, like, tanking multiple years, even with the new lottery rules, I still think is probably their best option. For the Knicks, it's like, all right, let's say they get Kemba. Well, they didn't get any of the other Tier 1 guys this summer, but what's to say that they can't then make a trade for, you know— Davis, or if Giannis turns down the supermax in 15 months, like, is, does he become a next target for them? Or like, you know, you never know who's going to come out. And theoretically, just because New York always seems to pop up on these like player lists of like, oh yeah, you know, I'm interested in becoming a Nick. Um, I don't know. I, I, I think it's I think it's interesting. I think is it fair to say that like what Perry and Mills have in front of them this summer is like the degree of difficulty on anything that they've done thus far just gets ratcheted up like tenfold.
2: <laughs> the degree of difficulty. Uh, let me ask you something, actually, if I may, just to like paraphrase that question, what is the higher degree of difficulty for them? Because you guys mentioned the the Sixers, right? As an example, maybe an outlier of how it works. Is it a higher degree of difficulty to eventually becoming a really good team? If you strike out this summer and you try to grow slowly, or is it a higher degree of difficulty if you sign just like a Kemmer and a Jimmy Butler and you have one, like, foundational all-star in place?
1: Mm, That's a good question. Yeah, I I thought at first you were going to say, or just signing, just you know, just Durant, because you could make an argument that what if they sign, even if they sign Durant and Kyrie, now they have extremely restricted – You know, obviously with cap space, um, the ability to improve the roster around them, but the pressure is at the highest, right? So I think even that is more difficult than people think. That if they sign those two, how do you become an actual championship contender? Um, But no, I mean, I think the degree of difficulty is more difficult in my view through the draft because you're relying on a lot of factors you can't control, right? Like you're trying to put together a team that still goes out and plays basketball and they're not gonna actively try to lose. You can try to dictate that in terms of you know, the lineups you put out there, but then you still have the lottery with the the odds changed and then you still gotta get it right, whatever pick you get. And then those players have to come and they're only 18 or 19 years old and you have to develop them and hope that they hit at the right time. So. I actually think the degree of difficulty is tougher for just building straight through the draft because, like I said, there's so much out of your control versus at least if you have a few pieces, you can, you know, you could show some level of success, right? Like you can maybe get into the playoffs or win a playoff round. Um, If we're saying to win a championship, then I think what we're seeing across the league is most GMs or executives seem to think. You either got to do it the two extremes sign the top best free agent or end at the bottom of the lottery and the in the middle is is the hardest to win a championship but to but to show some progress, i think you know it, it's obviously easier to just go and you know s- stop sitting you know on the pot and actually make a move to 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 build the team better
0: but the the thing i want to throw in there and and i'm I've been guilty of this in the past as well is i think we all, as a, I think, as a fan base, and I think almost as a league, um, and I, Zach Lowe has talked about this at times. There's almost this um, fetish fetishization. Is that a word? I think it's a word. I'm making it a word. Um, <laughs> yeah, you're good. Yeah, with building through the draft, it's like let's keep playing the kids, let's keep stoppie on the draft picks, let's you know keep the cap like that. That sounds all well and good. But, like, okay, so, you know, the Knicks are are two years into that, and what is the best asset they have to show for it? The best asset they have to show for it is Mitchell Robinson. Mitchell Robinson is a potential defensive player of the year, let's say. Is he a guy that's ever going to be on an All-NBA team? I mean, I—, I, I probably wouldn't bet my own money on that at this point. I might bet some of yours, Mike. Mike, you might probably make a little bit more than me, Mike. So um, maybe I'll, I'll bet a few, a few of your salary dollars. I wouldn't bet any of my own. And ultimately
2: – I don't know how much you guys are making on that Nick's Film School Patreon. I think you're both doing <laughs> <that's
0: all. laughs> But like – and and then you – okay, so if you ask that question and then it's like, all right, well, what do you need to win a championship? Guess what? You need two All-NBA guys and a third guy that's like pretty close – so like when you ask that question to me, it's like, man, if you get if you could get Durant or or you know, not that it looks like it's going to happen, but like um, Kawhi and like a, someone from either that that first or second tier, it's like you you don't look a gift horse in the mouth. That's to me, that's the easiest scenario because the point that I think has been overblown the most is like, all right, so the next get Durant and Kyrie, who are they going to put around them, like? That's not going to be that complicated. I mean, they'll sign someone with the room exception, somebody good, a Danny Green or a J.J. Redick or a, a someone of that ilk will come and want to play in the garden for like a, a pseudo contender and, and and bump them up a notch. And then, you know, you'll get your, your vet minimum guy or two. I, I don't worry about that. I think too much has been made of, of that being a real challenge, assuming they, they have the dream summer. Mike, where do you stand on that?
2: I think, to me, the question when you're building a, a team in the NBA is always, how do I maximize my chances at getting a star, right? Yeah. Like, that's, that's in the end, that's what wins you high-level games. And so, you know, the problem with, like, signing a Jimmy Butler-type player is you'll become good. You'll be, like, maybe a playoff team. You'll be somewhere in that mediocre range. And so you compromise your ability to get another high lottery pick and your cap space is a little bit compromised too because you're not just going to sign jimmy butler you're going to sign jimmy butler plus other players so you know him or kem or whoever like isn't on a 30 win team just trying to do everything by himself basically we just saw in charlotte sure and so then then what do you get out of it right like maybe that's your route towards winning and you get to attract other players but really just cut yourself off uh, one of your potential avenues for acquiring a young star in this league. That's why I'd rather just be bad for another year. Because okay, then you have another top five pick, even if it is with these um, with these differently weighted lottery odds. Like give me that instead of just being a 31 win team all over again. Because I can at least see the light at the end of the tunnel, where I think it just becomes so much harder if you sign one of those tier two guys. And if you sign a tier one guy, like even if it is just one, okay, I get it. It's a lot harder to build around, but You've got Durant and you've got Kyrie, or Kyrie. You can make that work. You can just fill in. You know, they've got a bit of a Pied Piper effect, and you still have your pick, and you can make more out of it. And you're going somewhere finally if you're in that place.
1: Right. Yeah. No. That that's. I think that's where most people agree. I guess the question that, you know, fans, I think, are we are asking ourselves is, you know, when you think back to the '90s and those Knicks teams that you know never had. I mean you know, with all respect to Patrick Ewing, never had, you know, a Durant level player, a top three player in the sport, right? Um, Because there's so few like that, that, the, you know, the question becomes, if you don't, if you continuously don't land one of those guys, and we're talking about three, four, maybe five guys in the league, if you don't land one of them, when are you okay with just building a team that's going to be really fun and good and get to the second round, some years, the third, you know, and and basically be how the rest of the NBA is other than two teams, which is how kind of the league usually is over stretches of time. Right. And I think the Knicks because of being in New York and the draw of the garden that they haven't fully capitalized on, the thought is, okay, let's finally, let's just keep kicking the can down the road because eventually we should, we are Indiana we should be able to capitalize in the market and eventually get one of those guys. And I think most fans agree if it doesn't work out this summer, that's what you do. But the question is, okay, now if you get into 2020 and you still haven't got that type of player, you know, at what point, I think that's the next big kind of question is like at what point if you keep drafting guys that are, you know, good players, but not great, not franchise changers, and you aren't getting that, top three player at what point are you just okay can you say yes it's it's fine to just build a really good competitive team that isn't literally the best team in the league because you know you could kind of get stuck in paralysis um you know only aiming for that one goal but
0: i just i i want to jump on because you know jeff you raise a good point but to me it goes back like mike i, I logically what you just said makes perfect sense but at the same time, I keep going back to to what you wrote a month ago. There's that tautology: the Knicks are the Knicks until they aren't. And if if this summer, of all summers, after all of this noise and all of this smoke, players, those top tier of players, still looked at the situation and said, "Yeah, you know what? I'm good." Like, what is it going to take to truly change? You know. I'll throw the, the c word out there to change the culture, to get it so that like players want to come and play in Madison Square Garden, uh, you know, as as the home team, and like, is it going to take? I'll say the word again, like a bridge player. Like again, St- Amari Stoudemire was not the perfect version of this, but there was a way that 2010 could have evolved that that situation potentially could have. Ended differently, and ironically, it would have um, involved not amnestying Phillips, so they could have then amnestied um, Amare to open up more cap space, and we don't have to go down that road. But I don't know. I just I'm I am so caught up on this idea of like the chicken or the egg. Something has to something has to give, and we're all hoping the thing that gives is Durant saying, "Yeah, guys, I'm coming." But I, like we've been kind of dancing around this whole time, like what, you know, what if he says no, where where does that leave them? And I think it's a fascinating question. And, and I don't think we have the answer.
2: Hey, maybe just slow growth is the way that you make a change, right? Like you draft enough good players and you build internally and that after a while makes you uh, a place that other players want to go to. It doesn't always have to be kind of trying to find answers right away in the in free agency. If you can grow slowly and you accumulate enough good young talent and you still have some cap space maneuverability, that's a way to get good too. And that's that's how you change uh you know, your reputation or your culture or whatever in a different way than just trying to convince the one superstar every summer to come join your team and hoping that, you know, at that point in time in his life you were the
0: exact place that he wants to go to. Well well you just spent some time around a team, I think Um, Look, if we're being fair, um, a team that has done exactly what you're suggesting, um, and that's the Brooklyn Nets. I know there's a lot of Knicks fans that that don't want to hear it, um, but I've been saying it, and I'll continue to say it. I I think absolutely Brooklyn is a threat to have a big summer. Um, I I, I feel like I'd be lying if I said anything else. You just spent some time around them, and I am... I I know... (laughs) I know Knicks fans are going to get on me for this, for saying this to you in particular, because there there is a perception that every media member has a love affair with, um, you know, the guys that are running the Nets and what they're doing. I think there are some that do. Um, I don't group you in that category. I hope you don't mind. Um, I think you've been fair in your evaluation of the team. Um Although the, although the Sean Marks no shoes thing, that, that, was, that was something, I will say that. That was a pretty good uh, inkling in that story. What do you think? Have the, have, have the Nets done enough? Um, where, where do you see them at coming into the summer?
2: Oh, look, I don't know if he should wear shoes or not. That's, they say that's a New Zealand <laughs> thing. Like I don't know. I've never, I've never studied Kiwi culture. That's not my expertise. Um, I thought it was. Whatever, whatever. Like, you do you, you know? Uh, Who am I to judge? Um, You know, I like what the Nets have done, but I think it shows that there's a different way, and I think it's just made for such an easy juxtaposition with the Knicks, right? Like, here's one team going all out to lose in one year after a certain point. You know, I think by, like, December or something, they realize, okay, this is just not in the cards for us, so let's just... Let's let's try to be as intentionally bad without saying we're gonna try to be as intentionally bad as possible and that's gonna be the way that we grow our organization. And that's we're like, no, we never want to tank. Like that's not our that's not our thinking. We've built our entire cultural uh, our entire organizational ethos of being competitive. And and by the way, they
0: had the perfect opportunity to do it when Levert went out. They were eight and 8 I believe, when Levert went out, right? Uh
2: yeah, they were 8 and 18. They just lost eight straight games. Like they had their chance. They could have chosen to rearrange their team in such a way last summer to do it because they finally got their pick or they could have done it in late November when LeVert and that losing streak hit, and they didn't. And they thought, "Okay, you know, the way we become attractive to free agents is by being, you know, respectable, and I think that the playoff appearance came much earlier than they thought. I don't I doesn't seem like they thought it would happen this year, and so they said, "Okay, we're going to attract free agents" Based on our organization, based on, again, you know, cultural, I hate using that word, but it is what it is. And like, based on facilities based on the people we have in house. And, you know, cap space alone won't do it right like cap space and the lore of Brooklyn isn't enough. So they want to have some results to show people some growth to show people and that's the way that they want to do it and maybe that's what it'll take for the Knicks. is maybe it'll take one year next year them getting 10 wins better and showing their own growth instead of just talking about it um to show free agents like this is why we're a destination
1: right well i mean i think the other part of it too is you know i've been saying this a lot is to me the knicks record in this year in particular is as much a product of them clearing the cap yeah. As it is, right? Like, quote, tanking for a pick or for anything like that. So the Nets, because of the fact that a long time ago they traded, they made a lot of bad moves. And because they haven't been a desired destination, even less so than the Knicks, they didn't, they weren't in that same position in terms of, okay, you know, we, we have, you know, we have certain players that we need to kind of, you know, clear the books. They, they've they had a longer time, I should say, to make up for bad decisions, just like the Knicks had bad decisions. And therefore, when you don't have to clear the cap, um, you know, you can feel the different roster because they're a couple years, I guess, further down, and, you know, they can start winning games. So I guess, you know, it, it just brings up to me I'm interested in, you know, I think it's written sort of like, yes, the Knicks obviously, you know, tanked in terms of the way we would define it this year, but I'm interested in how they would have treated the season if, you know, it it wasn't for, if they already were in a cap-friendly situation, meaning, you know, you didn't have to sacrifice players to move contracts, you know, et cetera. Um, You know, maybe then you're winning more than, you know, than, than say the 17 games and, you know, again, with Brooklyn, I think we're we're saying the same thing, right? We're saying, does the decision of a few individuals confirm that progress has been made? Or can we make that assessment ourselves based on seeing, you know, how they came from being in a really bad situation, um, you know, to, to a better situation? But I guess that kind of long lead in, I wanted to transition a little bit. We've been a lot on like, oh, what did Knicks do if they sign this guy or don't? For some of the decisions that are in front of them, like Trier, um, what are your thoughts on that? Because they obviously have to decide on him. Uh, I think it's June 20th, the same night of the draft. Do you get a sense that they're they're pretty committed to him? And even if it gets tight based on where their draft pick is for the cap, they'll find other ways to make room or, you know, do you have a sense of you know, how they're going to approach that?
2: I don't yet. The Knicks have been keeping things pretty tight to the best, but I think it probably depends on, um, you know, who they sign. And I know, like, all that's the thing I hate to do in terms of analyzing the summer is it's always going back to, okay, who do they sign? But I, that really does dictate so much, right? Their incentives change, their goals change, the cap space obviously changes. Uh, I think more likely than not, I would expect to see Trier back next year. You know, part of it is the optics. Like they have to, uh, they they've been selling him as one of their great finds this year for the obvious reasons because mm-hmm. they signed him as an undrafted free agent and he worked out and they reward him with a you know two-year contract. Um, I would guess that he's back even if they have to uh, drop the option. Uh, not pick up the option for next year and then re-sign him in a different way. And um, JB, you've talked about the different cat manifestations of that. Uh, I think on Twitter and I think maybe in DMs between you and I as well. But there's ways to get it done. And I would expect him to get back because, you know, I, I, he's, he's young. He's got a certain skill. Um, and he's good PR for your front office in the sense that it's someone they can tout as a find uh, going forward.
0: Um, i I know you got to go soon, Mike. I, I just want to my last thing that I wanted to make sure I hit on is um, I thought one of the one of the best stories that I saw anyone in, in NBA writing do this year is the piece that you did on Mitchell Robinson, um, and you actually got a chance to sit down with him um, and I thought that was fascinating to to have his perspective on like how he approaches certain um, defensive possessions um, and if anybody didn 't see that, you should go check it out. My question for you on Mish is is I just kinda sitting, you know, from afar and like watching how he's grown this year and just trying to read into his persona and like how he's obviously very one way off the court and a very different type of player on the court. I've been trying to make the case that the Knicks may have more of a, a leader and more of like even if he's not maybe an all NBA level talent, someone who just to kind of go back to where we started, maybe he's the guy that could start to really, like, reset the culture um, for real and start to, um, you know, bring some more accountability on court in in terms of what they do. Did you get any sense of of that from getting to spend a little bit of time with him in terms of, like, you know, what type of person he is on or off the court?
2: Yeah, you know... I think he's interesting because he's definitely grown from the beginning of the season to uh, when it ended. I think you know everyone, even people from like his hometown, said he was shy. He was slow to open up. Uh, He was really introverted, and by the end of the year, he was he's really outgoing. You know, he turned into a big jokester and a prankster, and I think you saw then some of those uh, skits he did on the on the team's uh, network show and all that. Uh, I don't know if he's necessarily like the. I don't I don't know how to like define these I don't know if he'll immediately be the guy who turns it around because he's still young he's still twenty one um he's still got he, he still has to mature he doesn't seem like kind of that alpha personality and maybe he will become it you know that really grabs hold of the locker room of a team uh as of yet i I think that that Could be something he grows into in a few years. Um, but it's, it's not like you know when you hear about Damian Lillard and the way that he grabs hold of the Trailblazers organization, obviously, that takes time, but like sure. he was always that kind of person, always that kind of personality within the building. I think Mitch still has you know some growing up to do, and I, I think he's lighthearted and I think that's great for him, and that's his personality. I don't know if he's the guy who necessarily um, you know, changes the culture. But then again, I don't think that onus should be put on him or any one person individually. That, that has to come from a wholesale buy-in, you know, from the coach to your best player to everyone else on the team. Like, I think we too easily um, try to ascribe so many things to just one player when it takes more than just one player to really change organizations.
0: Uh, I think that's really well put. And uh, I think it's a good place to end it. Um, Listen, Mike, you've been killing it all year. Um, I know you're going to keep killing it. Um, I hope for your sake, I hope for our sake that this team um, is not a 17 win team next year. Um, Because I think it'll be more interesting if if maybe they, um, I don't know, are good. Just a thought. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So yeah, man, I really appreciate you coming on. You you really have been kicking ass this year. So uh, thank you for the time.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Uh, and as always, if you haven't yet, if you're listening to this, uh, go subscribe to the Athletic. You go to theathletic.com/backslash NYX for all our Knicks coverage there. Um, I, you know, look, I'm biased, but also, I'm not. I think we're doing some good work on the site as a whole. You know, we're covering like, I think every professional team in North yeah, America, everything. if not the right. world. Right. Uh, I've lost track of where we're growing. Um, but yeah, come, you know, come check us out. And uh, come subscribe. I, I think there's a lot of good stuff for whatever interests you.
1: I'll, yeah, I'll yeah, make... and, and I was going to say, I was going to add too. I mean, I, you know, I think I, it was earlier today, I shared out an article and someone said, Why are you sharing an article when I need to describe, uh, subscribe? <laughs> and I'm like, Because a lot of people already subscribe. And I think what people miss is you don't just get the Knicks or New York, like you're alluding to, you get every single team. So imagine like subscribing to, you know, the the New York Post or whatever, but you're also getting, you know, the LA Times, the Washington, you're getting every city. So, so I recommend it too.
0: And, and while yeah. we're, while we're making a pitch for the athletic, I do it, your stuff is amazing. And I, I would say probably 80% of the stuff I read, um, on the athletic is either by you or, or Moak, but you guys also do have the occasional general NBA piece that like, for instance, the player poll that came out, um, I think it was about a month ago, right? Um, that that was like, that's great stuff. Um, if you're an NBA fan and you just like, you're not finding that anywhere else. And, um, what is it? It's five bucks a month, right?
2: I mean, we've always got a deal going. I think at one point it was like three fifty a month. If you check, you know, you can tweet at me directly, uh, at Mike Vorkanoff, and I can send you the latest deal that we've got going. There's always, you know, some kind of percent off. And, like, I can't see how you pay attention to the rest of the NBA without reading Sam Amick or reading Ethan Strauss or our Warriors coverage and, you know, Shams and all those people. Like, they're all writing on the site. They're writing really smart and good things every day. And so even if uh, you want more than your Knicks coverage or you want Yankee stuff, Rangers, Islanders, like, every baseball team, it's all there.
0: And, and listen, if you subscribe, you'll make Mike's salary higher, which means that I could bet more <laughs> of his money on if uh, Mitchell Robinson is going to make an All-NBA team t- someday. So uh, lots of lots of benefits across the board. All right, Mike, we've kept you for too long. Um, thank you again so much. Uh, JB, you're the man. Um, and uh, all of you out there, you are the men or women, whatever you are, um, for listening, for tuning in. Sticking with us um, in the early part of the off season before things get interesting. So, um, with that, we will be back with you with another episode soon. Uh, but until then, enjoy the rest of your week. And yeah, be well. you go.